Thanks for listening to our Theosec podcast series brought to you by Blueprint 1543. Up next is the second half of my conversation with Dr. Cutter Calloway on human nature. And I think that's actually even sort of leads to sort of corporate humanity where we go, even that is all of us agents, not sort of dictating from below what's going to happen. But as we gather together as humans, multiple humans, there are these higher level dynamics that are in play, that none of which any of us as individuals are responsible for, but is a real thing, right? So a you think of a, a society or a, a culture on that level, right? That you have a the, the zeitgeist, right? Well, what is a zeitgeist? Other, other than kind of a, a real description of some higher order dynamic that's in, in, indicative of a, of a group of people. And that's what we would, I guess. Yeah, a cultural phenomenon that, yeah, that is rising up from just the, the parts that we all offer as individuals. That, yeah. Yeah. yeah, when I think of the term emergence, I think of you know, some, something that a system that's more than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like you said, it's very hard to wrap your mind around. And I really want to spend some more time with that, that idea at some other point, because it feels, it feels important to explain the kind of things that we, you know, see happening in on a cultural level. Well, and I think as you know, I know we talked, we want to talk sort of like theological implications. One way to think about this, or at least how I've gotten to it. When we think about like, human nature and the Imago Dei, right? Like a lot of times people talk about being made in the image of God is what it means to be made human. Okay, well, that's all fine and well. But if you think of human personhood as emergent and extended and embedded, these sort of things, well, all of a sudden, it becomes very difficult to say that I, on my own, bear the image of God. <laughs> if, mm. if in fact, human personhood is emergent and extends into other people, really only we collectively image God. So this I would get from my friends, Warren Brown and Brad Strawn. They've done some work on this in mm-hmm. terms of like Christian notions in particular. And, and that is to say that, that however we can understand complex theory, you know, these sort of things, more simple way of thinking about it is, can I be a, a, a good Christian, a virtuous person on my own? And I think the answer would be no. There, 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 you do have your own sort of individual moral responsibility, but at the same time, it, it, emergent notions of the self or of cognition imply there are higher level processes involved for me to actually be human. And that is both at the individual and the corporate level. We together sort of image Christ. And then this is the scandalous theological thing that I've trying to work through, and I don't know if I believe it. So I have to believe this heresy that I'm about to say. But it does seem then that if human personhood is definitionally emergent, that means it's developmental. It's not a it's not a place at which we arrive, but it's a, a, a process, right? Of of emergence, maybe. Could we say, and would we say that Jesus, even in Jesus' resurrected state, as a full bearer of the image of God is in fact emerging, <laughs> meaning the resurrection didn't result in a static person known as the second person of the Trinity, but instead was is an emergent human. What does that mean theologically for us? Now that's more sort of speculative and fun. I think the more practical thing is how do we image Christ as a body, as a group? But those are sort of the two immediate kind of theological implications for me thinking about cognition as emergent. That is a really interesting idea. 
And, but I mean, it, it makes sense that we would be, that going from, you could go from good to better, or you could be, I could go from not knowing Portuguese to learning Portuguese. And I wouldn't have been worse when I didn't know Portuguese, but I feel, but I'd be better once I learned Portuguese because I can now connect and communicate with a whole nother group of people in the world or something like that. Like, that's how I think of that idea and not, and just thinking like, if you believe that this life continues somehow, which I don't know how, since we're so embodied, maybe you <laughs> have some deep thoughts on that. And you just said that we like have to be embodied. But if, <laughs> if that continues, it seems to make sense that there would be still processes happening or, or, or adventures to be had, let's call them, if you want to. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, I do think, I mean, so now here's, I'll, play my hand totally uh, as a Christian theologian who's not just, well, not just a, in terms of academically, but I'm a confessional Christian theologian. So I do think Christian theology hands us, and then I personally uh, identify because of this, is deeply incarnational, embodied in terms of human personhood and reality. And so what at least the Christian tradition suggests is a resurrected state, right? A recreated niche and a resurrected body that doesn't mean a, a floating ghost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it means actual bodies. And so, yes, we, we do. So exactly to your point, if our bodies and our humanness is fundamentally sort of developmental and emergent, then yeah, there's got to be some sense in which the age to come involves growth, it involves further expansion. And I, I think that's, some people would be concerned because then they go, but then you're not perfect. Mm-hmm. Well, no, like what is what is being, or you're not limitless or whatever. I, I don't know. I think most people's visions of the hereafter, if they're Christians, not most, but a lot of them are, I mean, I don't know, are, you don't, you're not God in that sense. You're still a human, but, but in some sort of uh, renewed state of relationality or something. Right. Why does that mean you can grow or change? You know, like I would think growth and change in that is always, as you're saying, a good, as opposed to currently change could be very bad, right? We can we can deform and, and maladapt as opposed to become more formative. So so that's how I would answer it metaphysically is that it we will always have bodies uh, by necessity. Yeah. Because to think to think otherwise is to think something, but it's to think something else. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be me who is in that new age, whatever it is. It would be something else. Yeah. To sort of skip back over to the thing you alluded to with the church as the, you sort of alluded to the church as the body of Christ, which if you think of it in an extended cognition type way, or in terms of emergence, there is a, like a very real way. I feel like that we could think of incarnating Christ corporately. And that's just such a cool idea as as that community changes and grows throughout the world. And can be extended digitally, right? Through right. technology as well. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I've, that's the other thing I've kind of come back to is an appreciation for all the metaphors of the body that we have in mm-hmm. the Christian tradition and, and how important it is and how kind of fruitful it is as a metaphor that's kind of not a metaphor, right? Yeah. That, that it is our bodies extended out toward each other. And I remembered you wanted me to say something about soft coupling, and this kind of pertains to that this notion of soft coupling when it comes to embedded and extended cognition is this notion that 
So back to Otto's notebook or our phones, right? Mm -hmm. This would be a kind of soft coupling, right? A, a hard coupling would be like I get an actual limb or something, a prosthetic mm -hmm. limb. That's that's more a hard coupling. Soft coupling is something that's routine, something that you draw upon without having to stop and sort of critically analyze. Does Google tell me the right thing? Does my notebook tell me the right, you know, that sort of thing? It's it's uh, repeated, it's routine, it's almost automatized, right? In that sense. And yet it's it's a it's a device, right? That that you're coupling. It's not, it's not a part yet of your body, if you will. And so in that sense, the extended cognition folks would also suggest that we can do that with other humans. Part of sort of social cognition and social thinking, social interaction involves this kind of soft coupling where you might, you know, ask someone to help you recall an instance or, you know, we've all had these, these times where like, I just honestly don't remember something. And then someone starts narrating the event because they were there. And then it's like, oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Now I remember, right. These are, and it's the trusted source that you can go to, that's sort of soft coupling. Now, if you think of it in Christian context of the body of Christ, now all of a sudden you go, now we have a routinized gathering of humans with other humans. And part of the way you could imagine this kind of ritual life is a form of extended cognition that involves our bodies, again, where our bodies are, are there, that instantiates, and this is the the scripture, right? Of where two or more are gathered in my name, that's where God is present. And so we, in a sense, we bring about the presence of the spirit, the presence of Christ in and through our extended bodies, right? With each other. And that's, to me, again, good and bad. Some would say theologically that that's suspect because that grants us too much agency in the equation. And I would say, well, I think it does. I mean, I'm not worried about that. I'm, <laughs> I'm more uh, concerned with the interesting sort of positive benefits of imagining our gatherings in those ways. Mm -hmm. And it also helps if you then start talking about the digitality of it, right? So now let's, in the COVID world, people have had to struggle with what does it mean to, to engage in religious worship services online and over Zoom? Yeah. And I think what's being highlighted there is that these sort of technologies, I think, can help augment, meaning extend or enhance our bodily life in the world. But when they're imagined as replacements for it, that's when things start breaking down. And so as we think through the implications of extension or embodiment or emergence, part of what we can think through is in what ways are these various soft couplings, these various technologies, these various extensions augmenting our life and are there moments where we are asking them to replace it? And if we're asking them to replace it, I think then we start struggling to, to say, now we're really being the body of Christ in that sense. Hmm. Yeah. That's good. I was thinking about, I recently heard, and maybe some, this would only some high church traditions talk this way, but it, and this has nothing to do with science really, but except that every, it does, except that all things do. But uh, the, it was a minister who was speaking in such a way, it's like talking pastorally to a person who's like, hey, I'm just having a real hard time believing right now, having a hard time believing, you know, in the resurrection or, or what have you. And, and the minister is speaking in such a way as like, that's okay, the church will believe it for you. 
and sort of it, it speaks it sounds exactly like this idea yeah. of extended cognition and emergence it's like this yeah. tra- this greater tradition it's ancient it's you know it's it's worldwide you know it it means yeah. something it means something and can kind of carry you well it's back to again uh, you know my my empirical research is in the psychological domain. So that's why this example is coming psychologically. But, you know, a lot of sort of modern sort of post-secular folks even would say, okay, well, I'm not, it's not about like believing in the resurrection and the community believing for me, but even something as simple as hope in a time of despair. So you have someone who's struggling with anxiety and depression. Part of going to therapy, (laughs) and then whether it's group therapy or individual therapy is you are coming into the presence of other humans who are are hoping for you when you are physically incapacitated to do so and and part of the therapist's role there is to to hope for that client in the in the interim until they can be reintegrated into their their community mm-hmm. and so even on that level if we're not if it's not a a religious level just a normal sort of mental health level implies that human wholeness involves a broader community that you're related to and embedded with. And at the same time, there is that element that you're describing that the community, the group carries for you certain capacities that, that you you don't have. And, and yeah, I think that's, it's really powerful. And it's part of why, at least in my role in being a part of religious communities, people who aren't a part of them will lament to me in some cases, like, wow, I don't have that, you know, like uh, something as simple as when my wife was pregnant with our last kid, you know, people from our church coordinated meals to be brought to our house. And some some women who uh, aren't a part of any uh, religion or religious tradition were like, wow, I, that would be neat. <laughs> that would be right, great to yeah. have community. Mm-hmm. And I do think that's the interesting point we're at in society right now is so many people are not, don't assume religion as a default and yet recognize all the sort of mental health outcomes and you know religious communities have a lot to offer the world i think on just this very basic level of can we be can we be your extended body in times of health and ill health what does that look like yeah in theology it seems to have encompassed some different ideas of imago dei which we've already mentioned the image of god and that has kind of done some of the heavy lifting in ter- theologically of how we value human beings, how we perceive one another. I don't know, the idea of human human rights is very connected. So maybe we could just end by talking about why talking about human nature and these different features of human nature matter to talk about. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, probably the main thing is the, the reason is, it, you know, it can get sort of hoity-toity or, or esoteric or whatever, and I realize that, but but the, the main goal or the hope of saying, like, here's why it's important for us to think clearly about what it means to be human is because so many of our on-the-ground decisions are informed by how we answer that question. And if we have a, let's say, a very narrow <laughs> ideologically skewed vision of what it means to be human, it's very, it's not a a far step from there to go, well, that person or those people don't, aren't quite as human as me. 
right? Mm. And now, because of that, because of my picture of what it means to be human, you don't count, either you don't count at all or you don't count in the same way. The sort of ethics of it are the immediate consequence. And so we could go back in time a little bit and say, you know, there, <laughs> the the Dred Scott case, I don't know if you know much about this, in, in the US, when they were weighing whether or not and how you know people who were of African descent in the United States could be or could not be considered. I can't remember all the details of, of, of property ownership or if they could even make an appeal to be considered as property or not. That it all came down to you know you can quibble with the law and it was a horrible law that that got passed, mm-hmm. but it all has to do with who is and is not a human. Mm-hmm. In fact, the decision that the Supreme Court passed was not weighing in on can America at the time consider the rights of people who are black or of African descent. They said, we reject at the at the beginning that a non-human entity can present us with a case. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we don't hear those cases. Mm-hmm. So it's like this, and, and that all has to do with what was your picture of what it means to be a human? Only a human can bring a court case before a jury or before a council of judges, right? And so if you can't, well, then we're not going to hear that's that's nonsensical. Now that's an extreme version, right? But but the implications of that are clear. So what does it mean to be whether you're making end-of-life decisions? What are the cognitive capacities you need to have to count as human that you have agency? What, you know, early life decisions? I mean, like all of these sort of things yeah. count in how we understand humanity and then how we evaluate and and make those sort of on the ground decisions. That's, I think, the biggest yeah. reason for me why it's important. And having both, as you had said before, meaning both the kind of science behind it and theology and philosophy behind it is important because, you know, science without, this is a misquote of something else, so I'm just riffing on it, but, you know, mm-hmm. science without theology or ethics is blind, but theology without science is essentially impotent. It's 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 irrelevant. Right. And so- I think having both is really important to go, okay, what is the science telling us about what it means to be human, the complexity of it, the, you know, both the universality and the on the ground individual difference. And then what is theology and the best of theology and the best of philosophy reminding us the the ways in which the science can't answer certain questions even though it can help us in a lot of ways too. So I think that's for me what ultimately matters. Yeah, yeah. The science offers an important touch point with the real world and our real everyday lives and can really broaden our understanding. Like you, all these, all these ease, like gives us a more fully, uh, a deeper picture an understanding of different aspects of a human and, you know, can help us from, from just going, why is that person acting like that? You know, that's so different from my embodied experience and how that can really take shape in different ways. Oh yeah. And and then, yeah, specifically as Christians, I mean, we, you know, wherever you're at listening to this or watching this, obviously you have a different version of Christianity given your, your niche, right. That you've sort of Mm -hmm. shaped it. And often we end up saying what is orthodox or what is theological is really a reflection of what is orthodox or theological from a particular niche, right? And so then you look at other people encountering different environments, responding to different pressures, responding in different ways because they're humans. So even being humble in the face of like how these things are different and producing different people that it's not about, oh, that human over there is is 
bad or evil or whatever, but mm -hmm. that person over there is exactly the product of what their environment would make them into. Right. Um, and that, again, they have responsibility, but at the same time, that's not our place to judge them as lesser or not, because we have a different environment that was shaping us in different ways. Right. You gave the example of if you took your mind and put it in an elephant, there you, you would just yeah. be something different. You wouldn't be yeah. Cutter yeah. Calloway anymore. <laughs> you would be. But yeah. if we, the, you know, sort of freaky Friday scenario, I think we probably underestimate how jarring that would be based oh, yeah. off of just a noble, just different be, my mind and your body or any you know it would be completely disorienting oh yeah and or a different yeah i mean it would, it would just be different and or a different environment right so you know people are entertaining colonizing mars right and taking people up there and i saw some i can't remember what it was but they were recently saying like okay mars is like a hellscape it's the high is like 80 below zero you can't you know you would you would dehydrate and evaporate immediately because there's no ozone. So like visions of like humans inhabiting Mars would have to be basically underground colonies. And so if you think like great human life is occasionally going above ground in a full suit, you know, and looking <laughs> at the sun, good on you, you know, good luck. Have fun. But yeah. it, it's had me that we have this, it, this thought that humans should and can, you know, explore beyond earth, right? Our sort of niche. And there's a lot of talk in sort of cosmological science about the anthropic principle, meaning that Earth is like perfectly situated for life and then for human life. And this is part of like, well, where's the other life? Well, it's not, it doesn't have the perfect, all the elements, right? right except Goldilocks principles. Yeah, yeah. It, exactly. And so that's, that is interesting. But what's also, but the assumption is that we could leave this anthropic, anthropically aligned place and still be humans. And I go, why do we think that? Actually, as soon as we colonize another planet, again, we may be something, we may have similarly material bodies, but we're now doing something different. Whether it's a new genus or species, I don't know, but there is something about our environment too that actually makes us human. And it's yeah. not simply that you can change that willy-nilly and all, and it's still what we think of as human. Now, of course, we don't know what the life on Mars forever would do to us, but it's just an interesting thought experiment to go, whether it's my mind in a different body, or my body in a different environment, different things would come from that in terms of how we understand humanness. Totally. But um, talking about extended cognition, it can sound a little weird. Like you sort of start to imagine your mind is like a gaseous cloud that starts to like seep into other people's bodies and these inanimate, inanimate objects and whatnot. So maybe you could just clarify a little bit about what are the limitations of that metaphor is it more than a metaphor yeah. yeah that's good yeah so on one hand it is metaphoric and metaphorical on another hand it's not right so this is this is going to be a both and and you can overextend and exhaust a metaphor where it's unhelpful but where it's not a metaphor is really these sort of tangible tools and things that we offload parts of our cognition in our external environment and that's actually not metaphorical. That's a, that's a tangible, actual thing that we do. And that's why that Otto's Notebook is an interesting idea to think about, or our cell phones or whatnot. And the limits of that, I think, are simply limited to the degree that our body is still involved. And that's where I would say that the sort of caution. So there, there might be some scenario, I think maybe we were talking before, where you could somehow 
I guess theoretically detach these cognitive processes. Again, it doesn't make sense to me in the way I understand the human and have it happen without me. That is a limitation. I don't, I don't actually think that's good or should happen. I don't even think it's possible. So that's, I, my bodily self still needs to be in place. So when I go and I, you know, log into Facebook and I'm doing something, I'm still tethered to my body in my interactions in, in uh, digital space. My, my communication with other bodies is mediated in different ways. And the other limit in the current situation is that the challenge is knowing if you are interacting with another body or not. I've heard statistics that something like 70% of your interactions online are not with other humans. They're with, with bots, with algorithms, right? That are posing as humans. Right. That's becoming very popular. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where the other limitation of it is, is not just, are you extended too much or something like that, literally, but to what is the end? What's on, who's on the other end or what's on the other end? And that's a a real problem, not even just a metaphorical problem, but a real problem as we think about the degree to which and the ways in which we're extending our cognitive activities. But it still is always cognition in the sense of this is the higher order process that's that's emerging from my core anchored self in my body. And that's where you then can start thinking metaphorically, I guess, where you get these ideas of, you know... I, it's, it actually becomes a little more sci-fi, right? Like if you've seen the movie Her with Joaquin Phoenix, right? You have this, this artificial intelligent bot who she kind of undergoes this infinite expansion, right? But it only really makes sense as a disembodied thing or entity or whatever we would call her and, and not as, as the human. And you, I think that movie even sort of sheds light on the the limitations of what we would think about that because whatever you think about sort of infinite consciousness or whatever maybe it's a thing and it's a conceptually you could get there but it again it's no longer a human thing this is this is no longer it's not accessible to what it means to be a human in that space and i think that on a metaphorical level is the limitation that we always want to say it can get very sort of you this utopian notion of you know infinite consciousness and that that worries me. I, that's not really what I would be interested in entertaining. That's an interesting question. Yeah, there's a lot of good sci-fi movies mixed in there. Or like Black Mirror, the episode where, I forget the name of the episode, but the husband passes away and she orders basically a robotic AI replica of him and he's been programmed to think and talk just like, you know, but it's not the same, you know? Yeah. There's no discernible difference. Then you get to, well, I mean, even that, what does it mean to be a body? And I mean, I've, I've gotten to, there's a whole new wave of, of people that are talking about the new materialism. And I'm somewhat attracted to it, but also like weirded out by it. Um, and I'm trying to find, we, we're in a time where we're, we're stumbling over our definitions. And it's important because exactly to your point, that, that I want to say not just that our bodies matter, but that matter matters, <laughs> you know, matter, and that human matter matters. And so there would be some difference between that replicated husband self and the husband. And the question for us is, well, why and to what degree and to what end? But it certainly is, they're already in, I mean, they're already like sex robots. It's, sure. it's not, I don't, I don't know if they have in real life, a replica of your spouse or something, but, mm -hmm. but it is certain. And, and even then, 
Yeah, even then you go, okay, well, even if we define that in non-human terms, they still could be an agent that we would ascribe some sort of moral imperative to, that you can't create an AI sex robot, that there would be something wrong with that. Why is it that I, this is my uh, theory of technology, in their capacity, no matter what technology in all of human history, the first and foremost things they find to do with their new technologies is two things. One, how to kill people with it. Two, how to have sex with it. So those are the two things that every technology drives toward. What does that say um, about human nature? Exactly, exactly. Actually, that reminds me of another topic, which I kind of wanted to ask you about, which was sin and how that fits into an idea of human nature. I think theologically, we're supposed to say it's like a not, not an essential part of human nature or something. But I don't know if you want to quickly well, remark on that. Yeah, it depends on your your sort of doctrine of of sin and how you understand depravity and or original sin, et cetera. And I'm, yeah, I'm I'm of the. This is where I I I appreciate my reformed sisters and brothers who have coined this phrase "good but fallen," right? Mm-hmm. Where I don't believe that I believe we all inhabit an environment that is conditioned by sin, but I don't think what, and and so again, back to environment, that means that I am a sin-shaped creature because of the environment that I inhabit. That doesn't mean that I am so profoundly flawed my as an individual that it constitutes human humanness at, at that level. And the reason I think that's important is because you go, well, uh, so here's some fun, the, the noetic effects of sin would be such that it would be impossible for you to ever come to a knowledge of God that would allow for you to escape from the very sin condition you're in, right? So you you get problems if you, if you plant it at the seed at the heart of, of the human creature, how do you ever move beyond that state? You, you can't, right? So that's why I like the science of these these embedded extended because it it helps us go okay you've been shaped in our shaping your environment and there are patterns that we can look at over time that we would say don't lead to human life or human flourishing in the in a robust human life and the christian narrative anyway says well here comes this human <laughs> that somehow inhabited this environment in a way that worked to your point earlier like worked against the the impulses that he inherited in a way that led towards flourishing that to me, and then calls us to do the same, right. Mm-hmm. That we would model something similar. Um, yeah. That's so be much better than, than the other version of sin. Right. I mean, just quickly, I, the th- ideas I've had on this lately kind of come from some of our theopsych materials, especially on free will, where mm-hmm. I'm currently thinking about, free will, you know, more on a spectrum, like more, there's a range, we have a range of, it's not like the question's not, are we free or not to make good choices, bad choices, whatever we throughout our lives, our, our, our free, our agency is expanding, hopefully not for everybody. Right. And one of the main factors, (laughs) tell me if a theologian's already said this, and I'm just hopping on board because this is me embedding in my brain the main factor that increases our agency is love and having a deep sense that we're loved loving others and being loved in return god's love god's love mediated by other humans so in that sense 
it's, I, you know, I almost want to say you call that salvation, right? Like it, it can be, you can call that something, maybe you call it sanctification or something, you know, if you want to, you know, if you, depending on yeah, where you're coming true. from, but I think you're right. The, 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 not that they've said it exactly, but that is the, the more Wesleyan version of things versus right. a form is that it's not just, it's not in theory, right. That you could become sanctified here. In fact, you can do it. I mean, it's otherwise we were given an impossible task. Like, <laughs> and so you see the different theological traditions intention there, sure. both with how we understand sin to begin with and how we respond to it. And, and I think you're onto something too, because I was actually talking to Justin. Should we refer to him as Dr. Barrett? Or do people know if I say Justin in this Justin's context? Justin's fine or, in this context. Yeah. Um, our, our friend and colleague about this with another one of our theopsych folks about, well, maybe, because I was asking about humans inhabiting a condition of sin, an environment of sin to which they're responding, and then Jesus. So like, what did Jesus do different then, right? Was he just like a super cool human? Was he like <laughs> specially spirit-filled? Maybe, you know. Again, to answer those questions, you have to kind of root yourself in a tradition and go, okay, here's how we've answered this, and here are the goods and bads. And I said, but what's interesting about what you're saying is you can think about it in a lot of ways of a family systems dynamics thing, right? I find it fascinating in the biblical text how much is involved in families against sibling against sibling, fathers and sons, mothers, spouses, etc. Yeah, some of that language is very troubling. Yeah. And, and if you think about, you know, our, you know, original humans, Adam and Eve, let's, you know, just speak sort of metaphorically this way, inhabiting basically a, 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 a perfect relationship with their father, right, their creator. And something about that got screwed up, where they no longer had a secure attachment with their father. And since then, we have just a history of insecure, unsafe attachments with family systems, right? That that's part of what we inherited. And then the thing that Jesus sort of reoriented was, and this is where we, we were toying with like the, the immaculate conception, because, you know, it's not just that Jesus was born a virgin, but that maybe Mary, you know, like trying to, trying to prevent or buffer Jesus from inheriting this sin. <laughs> and I said, well, and, and so much of the history has been more biology. Like Augustine famously thought sin was passed on literally through uh, semen, right? Like through the seed. Right. That's how, you know, and so that's did. why he, yeah. yeah, that's why he, he's like, well, we got to have sex because it makes humans, but it's bad. Cause that's how sin gets passed on, you know, um, <laughs> but, but, and so that's why you get these weird things of Jesus birth, but maybe it's that Jesus interestingly didn't have this biological father, not because of the biology, but because of the systems, he actually had a secure attachment with the father figure and that's what actually enabled him to thrive in the way that he did, and others of us haven't. And I was like, that's a really fun way of thinking about, and again, how valid it's not, but I think it's really understanding your point of, of how we imagine our agency in it. Because if you don't have, if you inhabit a realm where you don't have secure attachments to your caregivers, you it's, it's skewed, right? Like it's, it's rigged against you in different ways. And we can see the product. You can work against it. You can rehabilitate, whatever, but the conditions are different as opposed to if you have secure conditions. I don't know if that's right. what you're getting at. That's, no, it's uh, fun to think about. It'd be fun to talk more about, but you know, we don't want to talk forever and ever, but I, I will say on the, the Adam and Eve response to them making that 
bad decision was a shame response. That seems to be what's modeled in the story. You know, they're hiding, they're looking to cover themselves up. It's almost like they were exposed to something that they shouldn't have been. Like if, like if a child yeah. found porn or something like that, it's, it seems it's, it's interest. It's just an interesting element to the story that doesn't seem to jive with some of the interpretations of it. Um, yeah. Again, I mean, that's where, you know, was the author Genesis even trying to do any of that? I don't, probably not, <laughs> but for us to think through like, well, then how does sin function given what we know about the psychology of attachment, the psychology of, of environmental, epi, you know, epigenetic type stuff, can we, can we draw on that in some different ways? And I think you're right. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's and there's going to be a whole unit on free will stuff. Cause I think Bill Newsom did some cool things about free will in the talking about neurobiology and some yeah. understanding some of our limitations helps us give offer grace yeah. to people yeah. whose whose agency has legitimately been limited by their circumstances in ways that we have trouble under might be have trouble understanding and even our own agency is limited in ways that we yeah. maybe don't acknowledge that's, you know. that's where you go you got both got to give yourself a break and hold yourself accountable right that right we have to like, strike find that balance yeah yeah well thank you Peter, for your time this podcast is brought to you by blueprint 1543 learn more about our mission vision and resources at blueprint1543.org I'm Sari Martin Concepcion.